0: Okay, so today we're going to be doing kind of a cop-out. This is a review of Fundamentals of Genetic Engineering, also known as Molecular Genetics. And I'm doing this because we're going to be going through some principles of molecular genetics for phytoremediation applications, as well as because I seem to use it pretty much continuously in my, not- in my fiction. So, let's do a review. So this will just be a chapter review out of An Introduction to Genetic Engineering. This is Chapter 2, Introducing Molecular Biology. Um, This is a fundamental lesson, so we're not doing anything exciting or interesting. This is just a review of the bare basics. So at the end of the chapter, we will review organization of living systems and the concept of emergent properties, chemistry of living systems, the genetic code and the flow of genetic information structure of DNA and RNA. This one is particularly interesting because we're going to go through mRNA transcriptase through viral coding, which is relevant for COVID. Uh, Gene structure and organization, transcription and translation, the need for regulation of gene expression, genome organization, and the transcriptome and proteome. So. Before we look at the molecular biology of the cell, it may be useful to think a little bit about what cells are and how living systems are organized. Two premises are useful here. First, there is a close link between structure and function in biological systems, and second, living systems provide an excellent example of the concept of emergent properties. This is rather like the statement that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, in that living systems are organized in a hierarchical way with each level of organization becoming more complex. New functional features emerge as components are put together in a more complicated arrangement. One often quoted example is the reactive metal sodium and the poisonous gas chlorine, which combine to give sodium chloride or common table salt, which is, of course, not poisonous, unless taken in excess. Thus, it is often difficult or impossible to predict the properties of a more complex system by looking at its constituent parts, which is a general difficulty with the reductionist approach to experimental science. As a quick note here, this is one of the reasons that I have such a hard time dealing with civil and mechanical and even sometimes electrical engineers in the real world. It's Because they have such a reductionist approach that oftentimes it's very difficult to try and communicate any of these emergent properties or systemic conditions. And they seem to have like a relatively short timeline. So any projects that we do seem to they seem to think one or two years ahead not 50. Right? So this is one of the deep cultural clashes of being environmental biochemical versus civil or mechanical because they just seem to focus on on year over year behaviors not long-term system planning and holistic growth. So, just as a quick side note, the chemistry of living systems is based on the element carbon, which can form four covalent bonds with other atoms. By joining carbon atoms together and incorporating other atoms, molecules can be built up, which in turn can be joined together to produce macromolecules. Biologists usually recognize four groups of macromolecules, lipids, carbohydrates, proteins, and nucleic acids. For those of you following along, um, we have already reviewed some of those in the Basics of Biochemistry and the Nucleic Acids X-Series, and we have gone into some of the biological processes with anatomy and physiology reviews. But this is is kind of an all-in-one review. The synthesis of macromolecules involves a condensation reaction, and remember condensation is incorporating water, between functional groups on the molecules to be joined together. This dehydration synthesis forms a covalent bond by removing the element of water. In the case of the large polymeric macromolecules of the cells, such as polysaccharides, proteins, and nucleic acids, hundreds, thousands, or even millions of individual monomeric units may be joined together in this way. Uh, And polysaccharides are multiple sugars, so cellulose, for example. And we'll be looking at this with plant metabolism for phytoremediation. The polymers can be broken apart into their constituent monomers by adding the element of water back to reconstitute the original groups. So water breaks things apart, dehydration brings things together. This is known as hydrolysis or literally hydrolysis, water breaking. The monomer-polymer cycle and dehydration or hydrolysis um, are illustrated on page uh, 497 in the digital book. It's not terribly useful, it just shows hydrolysis, right? So water, add water, break it apart, take away water, comes together. The cell is the basic unit of organization in biological systems. Although there are many different types of cells, there are some features that are present in all cells. There is a cell membrane, or the plasma membrane, that is the interface between the cell contents and the external environment. Some cells, such as bacteria, yeast, and plant cells, may also have a cell wall that provides additional structural support. Some sort of genetic material, almost always DNA, is required to provide the information for cells to function, and the organization of this genetic information provides one way of classifying cells. In prokaryotic cells, or bacteria, for example, the DNA is not compartmentalized, whereas in eukaryotic cells, the DNA is located within a membrane-bound nucleus. So a quick note, um, the bacterial cells also allow for this loose DNA to be translated so it can be passed from bacteria to bacteria laterally through what could be seen as a type of sexual selection. It's not, but the gene lateral gene transfer is important with bacteria because that's how we're going to develop clonal cells. So, Eukaryotic cells also utilize membranes to provide additional internal structures. Prokaryotic cells are generally smaller in size than eukaryotic, but all cells have a maximum upper size limit. This is largely because of the limitations of diffusion as a mechanism for gas and nutrient exchange. Typical bacterial cells have a diameter of 1 to 10 micrometers, plant and animal cells are 10 to 100 micrometers, In multicellular eukaryotes, an increase in the size of the organism is achieved by using more cells rather than by making cells bigger. So as we talk about like Bakalov-Smills' biosphere uh, and the hierarchical nature of life and organisms and how we define life, this is really important, right? Because we're talking about communities of cells, not just macroorganisms. It's that emergent property rule again. So, to set the structure of nucleic acids in context, it is useful to think a little bit about what's required in terms of genetic information to enable a cell to carry out its various activities. It's a remarkable fact that an organism's characteristics are encoded by a four-letter alphabet defining a language of three-letter words. The letters of this alphabet are the nitrogenous bases adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine So how do these bases enable cells to function? And as a quick note, when it says nitrogen as bases, uh, that's where we get the amino from amino acid is the combination of nitrogen. And we'll do an organic chemistry review here as well, I think, because everyone needs a review of organic chemistry. The expression of genetic information is achieved ultimately via proteins particularly the enzymes that catalyze the reactions of metabolism. Proteins are condensation heteropolymers synthesized from amino acids, of which 20 are used in natural proteins. Given that a protein may consist of several hundred amino acid residues, the number of different proteins that may be made is essentially unlimited, assuming that the correct sequence of amino acids can be specified from the genetic information. As the bases are critical informatic components, we can calculate that using the bases singly would not provide enough scope, only four possible arrangements to encode 20 amino acids, as there are only four possible code combinations of AGCT. Running that math forward a little bit, you can get four to the third using a triplet combination or 64 possible permutations, which is much more than sufficient for developing our amino acid requirements. Thus, great diversity of protein form and function can be achieved using an elegantly simple coding system with three sets of nucleotides, or codons, specifying the amino acid. Thus, a protein of 300 amino acids would have a minimum coding requirement of 900 nucleotides on a strand of DNA. The genetic code, or dictionary, is one part of molecular biology that, like the double helix, has become something of a biological icon. Although there are more possible codons that are required, 64 as opposed to 20, three of these are stop codons. Several amino acids are specified by more than one codon, which accounts for the remainder, a feature that is known as redundancy of the code. I believe this can also help with some of the garbage in our genetic code. So some of the unused codons that may not be necessary for phenotypic expression, could be a viral immunity, it could be useful for other types of environmental stressors. So it's something that we have developed over time in the genetic code that is currently encoded as, as these garbage codons, but can be very useful in the event of, say, a pandemic or, say, changes in environmental conditions. So those activated codons could come into play as environmental conditions change an alternative term for this where the first two bases in a codon are often critical with the third less so is known as a wobble these features can be seen in the standard presentation of the genetic code shown below uh, and this is location 537 of the book digital book so just as a quick note remember that codons always read from the 5 prime to the 3 prime uh, and we have a whole bunch of amino acids and termination translations. The flow of genetic information is unidirectional from DNA to protein with messenger RNA or mRNA as an intermediate. The copying of DNA encoded genetic information into RNA is known as transcription and the further conversion into protein being termed translation. So I always remember this as transcript has a C, which is before translate, which has an L. So like alphabetically, right? This concept of information flow is known as the central dogma of molecular biology and is an underlying theme in all studies of gene expression. So DNA to RNA to protein using transcription, then translation. That is the central dogma. Two further aspects of information flow may be added to this basic model to complete the picture. First, duplication of the genetic material prior to cell division represents a DNA-to-DNA transfer known as DNA replication. A second addition, with important consequences for the genetic engineer, stems from the fact that some viruses have RNA instead of DNA as their genetic material. These viruses, chiefly members of the retrovirus group, have an enzyme called reverse transcriptase, an RNA-dependent DNA polymerase that produces the double-stranded DNA molecule from the single-stranded RNA genome. Thus, in these cases, the flow of genetic information is reversed with respect to the normal convention. The central dogma is summarized on location 551 in the book. So this just means that the reverse transcriptase can create a different blueprint in the cell DNA that can then be translated and transcribed into proteins. So that's how the mRNA virus works. In most organisms, oh and remember the shape of a nucleotide is a pentagon, right? And you can picture it with oxygen at the top and then count clockwise from that oxygen at the top, one, two, three, four. and then on the fifth carbon, that's where you get your nucleotide hanging out or your phosphorus hanging out. So it has it has its five sugars um, and all and on the fourth carbon, that's where it changes shape and it like sits up and that's your 5th carbon and then attached to that 5th carbon is the phosphorus group, like a little flag. So in most organisms, the primary genetic material is double-stranded DNA and what is required of this molecule? First, it has to be stable as genetic information may need to function in a living organism for up to 100 years or more. Second, the molecule must be capable of replication. And just as a quick note, Some trees live for thousands of years, right? So the DNA that we're talking about has to survive in its complete form for a thousand years in like one of the Methuselah trees, for example. That's very impressive. So it has to be a very stable molecule. It must be capable of replication, right? We need to replace cells as this thing grows. And it needs to permit dissemination of genetic information as new cells are formed during growth and development. Third, there should be the potential for limited alteration to the genetic material, or mutation, to enable evolutionary pressures to exert their effects. So it needs to be a stable molecule, but still flexible enough to create mutations for its environment so it can change to its environment. I feel like this is a really good metaphor for the middle way in Buddhism, by the way, but apropos of nothing. The DNA molecule fulfills these criteria of stability, replicability, and mutability, and when considered with RNA, provides an excellent example of the premises that we considered earlier, the very close relationship between structure and function, and the concept of emergent properties. So nucleic acids are heteropolymers composed of monomers known as nucleotides. A nucleic acid chain is therefore often called a polynucleotide. The monomers are themselves made up of three components, a sugar, a phosphate group, and a nitrogenous base. The two types of nucleic acids, DNA and RNA, are named according to the sugar component of the nucleotide, with DNA having a 2' deoxyribose as the sugar, hence deoxyribonucleic acid, and RNA having ribose, hence ribonucleic acid. The sugar phosphate components of a nucleotide are important in determining the structural characteristics of polynucleotides and the nitrogenous base determines their information storage and transmission characteristics. The structure of a nucleotide is summarized in figure 2.3 and that's location 577. So nucleotides can be joined together by a 5 prime to 3 prime phosphodiester linkage and remember a diester has two Has a double bond to an oxygen from organic chemistry. And because oxygen is a a polar molecule, this confers directionality on the polynucleotide. Thus, the five prime end of the molecule will have a free phosphate group and the three prime end a free hydroxyl group. And this is important for the structure, function, and manipulation of nucleic acids. In a double-stranded molecule such as DNA, the sugar phosphate chains are found in anti-parallel arrangement, with the two strands running in different directions. The nitrogenous bases are the important component of nucleic acids in terms of their coding function. In DNA, the bases are listed as adenine, quinine, cytosine, and thymine. In RNA, the base thymine is replaced by uracil, which is functionally equivalent. Chemically, adenine and guanine are purines, which have double ring structure, whereas cytosine and thymine and uracil are pyritamines, which have single ring structure. In DNA, the bases are paired A with T and G with C. This pairing is determined both by the bonding arrangements of the atoms in the bases and by the special constraints of the DNA molecule. The only satisfactory arrangement being a purine pyrimidine base pair. They have to go together. The bases are held together by hydrogen bonds. Two in the case of AT base pair, and three in the case of GC pair. So I always remember that as that GC is sort of like a round letter, and so it would have a rounded shape, uh, just for the purposes of memory. So it would have more bonds, right? It would be, it would be stronger and have more bonding. The structure and base pairing arrangement of the four DNA bases are shown in figure 2.4. And remember from organic chemistry that these ring structures are super stable, right? They are very happy right where they're at. They've got those beautiful bond angles that just like to be around each other. It promotes hydrogen bonding, it promotes stacking. So those ring structures are really important from a a practical standpoint to build molecules. The DNA molecule in vivo, or in life, usually exists as a right-handed double helix called the beta form. And remember, beta form means that the hydrogen is pointed down from your organic chemistry. And this is important um, because of chirality, so I really feel like I need to do a review of organic chemistry for this, but so remember chirality is like the shape of your hands, right? Your, your hands are symmetrical, sort of, but they're mirror images of each other, and that's an example of chirality. So for some reason all life seems to have this L-chirality, this L shape in our amino acids, so it's not that the, um, the alpha form of the double helix, for example, wouldn't work, Chemically speaking, they're exactly the same. Uh, But for some reason, life favors this beta form, this this selective criteria of chirality. And we talked a little bit about that in the Backlove Sill chapter, but I don't think scientists really have an understanding of where that comes from. Uh, You know, our professor described it as as potentially being um, an effect of polarizing light. So if you are exposed to the same wavelength, if you're a little chemical molecule and you're exposed to the same wavelength of light continuously and you are a polar molecule um, You could select for a certain chirality because the light would essentially alter the shape of the the molecule. I mean that's That's possible, right? We know of light-based Or light-sensitive molecules all the time from our lab work, Uh, but it is an interesting question, right? So the structure of RNA is similar to that of DNA. The main chemical differences are the presence of ribose instead of 2' deoxyribose and uracil instead of thymine. RNA is also most commonly single-stranded, although short stretches of double-stranded RNA may be found in self-complementary regions. There are three main types of RNA molecules found in cells: messenger RNA (mRNA), ribosomal RNA (rRNA), and transfer RNA (or tRNA). Ribosomal RNA is the most abundant class of RNA molecule, making up some 85% of total cellular RNA. It's associated with ribosomes, which are an essential part of the translational machinery within cells. Transfer RNAs make up about 10% of total RNA and provide the essential specificity that enables the insertion of the correct amino acid into the protein that is being synthesized. Messenger RNA, as the name suggests, acts as a carrier of genetic information from the DNA to the translational machinery and usually makes up less than 5% of total cellular RNA. So from our Vaclav Smil chapter, Um, Just a quick note here, RNA is the mutability element, so, you know, we need that stability with mutability, and RNA seems to make a lot more mistakes, but it's also way more flexible, and it can do more stuff. You know, it can act as its own enzyme, it can act as its own translator, it can act kind of like the Swiss Army knife, so it does make more mistakes, but it also brings in that flexibility and the mutability that DNA just doesn't have. So the two together, it's actually a really powerful combination. Um, and I don't think that we talk about that a lot because, you know, the, there is an idea that RNA was the first life molecule, that it was the first way of encoding information, and that the reason that it's a Swiss Army knife and it can fold around itself and do all this cool stuff is because it it's the best right like it was the first and it's the only way physically that a molecule can reproduce itself and that's why it's so powerful dna might have been the evolution of rna as it needed stability you know it essentially built dna to give itself stability which i just think is a really cool idea about how you have these molecules creating their environment And we talked a little bit about that in the Y-series in in Buddhism the other day. But I find that really interesting, so I wanted to bring that up before we just skip over RNA. Because I feel like RNA doesn't get a lot of attention, it's just considered to be sort of the... the errand girl of the cell. And I don't... I don't necessarily see why, like it's the one that provides communication. It's the one that allows the cell to actually function and to work together. So there's a, I feel like we need to spend a little bit of time on that. Anyway, gene organization. The gene can be considered the basic unit of genetic information. Genes have been studied since the turn of the century when genetics became established. Before the advent of molecular biology and the realization that genes were made of DNA, study of the gene was largely indirect. The effects of genes were observed in phenotypes and the behavior of genes was analyzed. Despite the apparent limitations of this approach, a vast amount of information about how genes function was obtained and the basic tenets of transmission genetics were formulated. As the gene was studied in greater detail, the terminology associated with the, this area of genetics became more extensive and the ideas about genes were modified to take these developments into account. The term gene is usually taken to represent the genetic information transcribed into a single RNA molecule, which is in turn translated into a single protein. Exceptions are genes for RNA molecules, such as rRNA and tRNA, which are not translated. In addition, the nomenclature used for prokaryotic cells is slightly different because of the way that their genes are organized. Genes are located on chromosomes, and the region of the chromosome where a particular gene is found is called the locus of that gene. In diploid organisms, which have their chromosomes arranged in homologous pairs, different forms of the same gene are known as alleles. Now, I do feel necessary. It's a little bit, I think, of a misnomer to say that genes are located on chromosomes. Chromosomes are huge collections of DNA that have been folded into these really precise patterns. So I think the genes are the chromosomes, it's just where they happen to be folded at that moment. Anyway, uh, diploid organisms which have their chromosomes arranged as homologous pairs, different forms of the same gene are known as alleles. Anatomy of a gene. Although there is no such thing as a typical gene, there are certain basic requirements for any gene to function. The most obvious is that genes have to encode the information for a particular protein or RNA molecule. The double-stranded DNA molecule has the potential to store genetic information in either strand, although in most organisms only one strand is used to encode any particular gene. There is the potential for confusion with the nomenclature of the two DNA strands which may be called Coding or non-coding, sense and antisense, plus, minus, transcribed, non-transcribed, or template, non-template. In some cases, different authors use the same terms in different ways, which adds to the confusion. Recommendations from the International Union of Biochemistry and the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry favor the terms coding and non-coding, with the coding strand of DNA taken to be the mRNA-like strand. This convention will be used in this book where coding function is specified. The terms template and non-template will be used to describe DNA strands where there is not necessarily any coding function involved, as in the copying of DNA strands during cloning procedures. Thus, genetic information, Is expressed by transcription of the non-coding strand of DNA, which produces an mRNA molecule that has the same sequence as the coding strand of DNA, although the RNA has uracil substituted for thymine, of course. The sequence of the coding strand is usually reported when dealing with a DNA sequence data, as this permits easy reference to the sequence of RNA. Remember, 5' to 3'. In addition to the sequences of bases that specifies the codons in protein-coding genes, there are other important regulatory sequences associated with genes. A site for starting transcription is required, and this encompasses a region that binds RNA polymerase, known as the promoter, and a specific start point for the transcription, TC. A stop site for transcription is also required. From TC start to TC stop is sometimes called the transcriptional unit, That is, the DNA region that is copied into RNA. Within this transcriptional unit, there may be regulatory sites for translation, namely a start site, TL, and a stop signal, TL. Other sequences involved in the control of gene expression may be present either upstream or downstream from the gene itself. So, gene structure in prokaryotes. In prokaryotic cells such as bacteria, genes are usually found grouped together in operons. The operon, excuse me, the operon is a cluster of genes that are related, often coding for enzymes in a metabolic pathway, and that are under the control of a single promoter or regulatory region. Perhaps the best-known example of this arrangement is the lac operon, which codes for the enzymes responsible for lactose catabolism. And remember, Catabolism builds, anabolism destroys. Within the operon, there are three genes that code for proteins, termed structural genes, and an upstream control region encompassing the promoter and regulatory site called the operator. In this control region, there is also a site that binds a complex of CAMP, or cyclic adenosine monophosphate, and CRP, a CAMP receptor protein, which is important in positive regulation or stimulation of transcription. Lying outside the operon itself is the repressor gene, which codes for a protein, the lac repressor, that binds to the operator site and is responsible for negative control of the operon by blocking the binding of RNA polymerase. The fact that structural genes and prokaryotes are often grouped together means that the transcribed mRNA may contain information for more than one protein. Such a molecule is known as a polycystronic mRNA, with the term "cistron" equating to the gene as we have defined it, i.e. encoding one proton, protein. Thus, much of the genetic information in bacteria is expressed via polycystronic mRNA whose synthesis is regulated in accordance with the needs of the cell at any given time. This system is flexible and efficient and enables the cell to adapt quickly to changing environmental conditions. Gene structure in eukaryotes A major defining feature of eukaryotic cells is the presence of a membrane-bound nucleus within which the DNA is stored in the form of chromosomes. Transcription, therefore, occurs within the nucleus and is separated from the site of translation, which is in the cytoplasm. The picture is complicated further by the presence of genetic information in mitochondria, which in plant and animal cells is the energy powerhouse of the cell, and chloroplasts in plant cells only, which have their own separate genomes that specify many of the components required by these organelles. So we're gonna talk about this because in plants, the chloroplasts look like they are absorbed, looks like they were green algae, blue-green algae that essentially was absorbed into the cells, just like mitochondria. So here you have these symbiotic microbial populations working together on the small scale that create these macro effects. And we don't exactly know how chloroplasts work, and we're going to go through that because that's really important to a a cellular metabolism is this understanding of photosynthesis, which is primarily based in chloroplasts. Well, chloroplasts are a big deal, so we're going to look at that. But it helps to have a basic understanding of cellular structure, because mitochondria do something very similar. So I have this idea that the blue-green algae that we read about in Backlip Smill, which was the development of oxygen and which basically created the atmosphere on Earth, well, they're the same things that are creating oxygen and living systems and energy in our in our bodies, right? So we're going to go through that. Especially for plants, because we care about plants, because they are the primary producers of our world. They are the things that just defines our environment, are these these plants. So I'm very interested in them, so we're going to talk about that. Anyway, this compartmentalization has important consequences for regulation, both genetic and metabolic, and thus gene structure and function in eukaryotes are more complex than in prokaryotes. But again, remember, Macromolecules are just more of these simple cells, so because life is hierarchical, the more complicated you are just means the more of the simple stuff that you have. It doesn't mean that the simple stuff is not incredibly important or interesting or can't become these communities, and I think that's an important change because we, we tend to see oh it's a eukaryote so it's complicated and that means it's more valuable remember, these complicated uh, items, these complicated creatures, are just more of the simple stuff, stacked in each other and having these emergent properties. They are not necessarily better or worse. they are just more. And I think we talk a little bit about that in like um, determinant of maximum body size, and we talk a little bit about that in like determining the definition of life. So things like that. So we have this assumption that life needs to be complicated and it needs to interact with us, but I think there is something to be said for understanding these simple items, the simple creatures that build these communities step by step by step. The most startling discovery concerning eukaryotic genes was made in 1977 when it became clear that eukaryotic genes contained extra pieces of DNA that did not appear in the mRNA that the gene encoded. Well, we already talked about that, right? These sequences are known as intervening sequences, or introns, with the sequence that will make up the mRNA being called exons. In many cases, the number and total length of the introns exceed that which of the exons as in the chicken-ovalbumin gene, which has a total of 7 introns, making up more than 75% of the gene. As our knowledge has developed, it has become clear that eukaryotic genes are often extremely complex, and may be very large indeed. Some examples of human gene complexity are shown in Table 2.2, and essentially this illustrates the tremendous range of sizes for human genes. The smallest, which may be only a few hundred base pairs in length, and the largest, the dystrophin gene, spread over 2.4 mili- mili- megabytes. Hmm. I haven't heard DNA described that way. On the X chromosome, with the 79 exons representing only 0.6% of this length of DNA. Kilobase pairs. I'm sorry. So those would be megabase pairs, not megabytes. Um, Kilobase pairs is the standard of evaluation for size in genes. The presence of introns obviously has important implications for the expression of genetic information in eukaryotes in that the introns must be removed before mRNA can be translated. This is carried out in the nucleus where the introns are spliced out of the primary transcript. Further intranuclear modification includes the addition of a cap at the 5' prime terminus and a tail of adenosine adenine residues at the 3' prime terminus. These modifications are part of what is known as RNA processing and the end product is a fully functional mRNA that is ready for export to the cytoplasm for translation. The structures of the mammalian beta-globin gene and its processed mRNA are outlined in Figure 2.8 to illustrate eukaryotic gene structure and RNA processing. Yeah, so that's fantastically complicated. I know it's just a paragraph here, but we're going to talk about how enzymatic processes work to do those cap and tail deals. Um, Polymerase and heliotranscriptase and all kinds of stuff have to happen to that genetic code within the cell to make that possible. And it is is ludicrously complicated, which is why we're doing this review. Because I've read it, you know, four or five times now, and it still blows my mind, so we're going to do it again. Um, The expressed sequences, or exons, are shaded and numbered in this example, you'll have to read it on location 711, and the primary transcript is processed by capping, polyadenylation, and splicing to yield the fully functional mRNA. Gene Expression As shown in Figure 2.2, the flow of genetic information is from DNA to the protein. Whilst a detailed knowledge of gene expression is not required in order to understand the principles of genetic engineering, it is useful to be familiar with the main features of transcription and translation, and to have some knowledge of how gene expression is controlled from genes to proteins. At this point, it may be useful to introduce an analogy that I find helpful in thinking about the role of genes in determining cell structure and function. You may hear the term genetic blueprint used to describe the genome. However, this is a little too simplistic, and I prefer to use the analogy of a recipe to describe how genes and proteins work. Let us consider making a cake. The recipe, or gene, would be found in a particular book, chromosome, on a particular page, locus, And would contain information in the form of words, codons. One part of the recipe might read, add 400 grams of sugar and beat well, which is fairly clear and unambiguous. When put together with all the other ingredients and baked, the result is a cake in which you cannot see the sugar as an identifiable component. On the other hand, currants or blueberries would appear as identifiable parts of the cake. In a similar way, many of the characteristics of an organism are determined by multiple genes, with no particular single gene product being identifiable. Conversely, in single gene traits, the effect of a particular gene may be easily identified as a phenotypic characteristic. Mutation can also be considered in the recipe context to give some idea of the relative severity of effect that different mutations can have. If we go back to our sugar example what would be the effect of the last 0 of 400 being replaced by 1, giving 401 grams as opposed to 400 grams? This change would almost certainly remain undetected. However, if the 4 of 400 changed to a 9, or an additional 0 was added to 400, then things would be very different. Thus, mutations in non-critical parts of genes may be of no consequence, whereas mutation in a critical part of a gene can have an extremely serious consequence. In some cases, a single base insertion or substitution can have a major effect. Think of adding a K in front of the grams in 400 grams. The recipe analogy is a useful one in that it defines the role of the recipe itself, specifying the components to be put together, and also illustrates that the information is only part of the story. If the cake is not mixed or baked properly, even with the correct proportions of ingredients, it will not turn out to be a success. Genes provide the information to specify the proteins, but the whole process must be controlled and regulated if the cell is to function effectively. Transcription and translation. These two processes are the critical steps involved in producing functional proteins in the cell. Transcription involves synthesis of an RNA from the DNA template provided by the non-coding strand of the transcriptional unit in question. The enzyme responsible is RNA polymerase, DNA-dependent RNA polymerase. In prokaryotes, there is a single RNA polymerase enzyme, but in eukaryotes, there are three types of RNA polymerase, one, two, and three. These synthesize ribosomal messenger and transfer 5S ribosomal RNAs, respectively. All RNA polymerases are large multi-subunit proteins with relative molecular masses of about 500,000. So, remember that the subunits are how the enzymes come to be, right? They're like the, the physical structures that the codons get run through to be actually translated. So, they're, they're big, chunky enzymes or, or molecules in their own right that kind of just move from point to point on the polymerase. Well, the polymerase moves through them, right? So, they're, they're structural aspects. Transcription has several component stages. 1. DNA-RNA polymerase binding. 2. Chain initiation. 3. Chain elongation. And 4. Chain termination and release of the RNA. Promoter structure is important in determining the binding of RNA polymerase, but will not be dealt with here. When the RNA molecule is released, it may be immediately available for translation, as in prokaryotes, or it may be processed and exported to the cytoplasm, as in eukaryotes before translation occurs. Translation requires an mRNA molecule, a supply of charged tRNAs, or tRNA molecules with their associated amino acid residues, and ribosomes, composed of rRNA and ribosomal proteins. The ribosomes are the sites where protein synthesis occurs. In prokaryotes, ribosomes are composed of three rRNAs and some 52 different ribosomal proteins. The ribosome is a complex structure that essentially acts as a jig that holds the mRNA in place so that the codons may be matched up with the appropriate anticodon on the tRNA, thus ensuring that the correct amino acid is inserted into the growing polypeptide chain. The mRNA molecule is translated in the 5' to 3' direction, corresponding to the polypeptide elongation from the N-terminus to the C-terminus. Although transcription and translation are complex processes, the essential features with respect to information flow may be summarized as shown in Figure 2.9 or Location 754. In conjunction with the brief descriptions presented earlier, this should provide enough background information about gene structure and expression to enable subsequent sections of the text to be linked to those processes where necessary. Regulation of Gene Expression Transcription and translation provide the mechanisms by which genes are expressed. However, it is vital that gene expression is controlled so that the correct gene products are produced in the cell at the right time. Why is this so important? Let's consider two types of cells, a bacterial cell and a human cell. Bacterial cells need to be able to cope with a wide variation in environmental conditions And thus need to keep all their genetic material at the ready in case of particular gene products are needed. By keeping their genomes in this state of readiness, bacteria conserve energy by not making proteins wastefully and can respond quickly to any opportune changes in nutrient availability. This is an example of adaptive regulation of gene expression and one of the reasons that they're so powerful for the use in remediation projects, right? So we're able to use bacteria and microbiomes in wastewater treatment, in soil treatment, and in plant symbiosis for nutrient uptake and transfer. <laughs> yeah, so transcription and translation is kind of a hassle. I find it very complicated, and there are some nice pictures on location 766, um, but essentially This is a a visual learning opportunity. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to talk about it at all useful. Um, We can try. Transcription and translation. So transcription involves synthesis of mRNA by RNA polymerase. Part of the DNA mRNA sequence is given. The mRNA has the same sequence as the coding strand in the DNA or the non-template strand, apart from U being substituted for T. The ribosome is the site of translation and is made up of the large subunit, LSU, and the small subunit, SSU, each made up of ribosomal RNA molecules with different proteins. There are three sites within the ribosome. The A site the the aminoacyl, the P site is the peptidal sites, and they are involved in the insertion of the correct tRNA amino acid complex in the growing polypeptide chain. The E or exit site facilitates the release of tRNA after the peptide bond formation has removed its amino acid. So you can think of it like an alphabetical thing, right? A to P, P to E, and then another uh, codon drops into A. So when the mRNA is being translated, the amino acid residue is inserted into the protein in response to the codon or anticodon recognition event in the ribosome. The first amino acid residue is encoded by AUG in the mRNA, the tRNA anticodon TAC, remember because they're opposites, right? A to T, U to A, G to C. The remainder of the sequence is translated in a similar way. The ribosome translates the mRNA in the 5' to 3' direction, with the polypeptide growing from its N-terminus. The residues in the polypeptide chain are joined together by peptide bonds. In contrast to bacteria, human cells usually experience a very different set of environmental conditions. Cells may be highly specialized and differentiated, and their external environment is usually stable and controlled by homeostatic mechanisms to ensure that no wide fluctuations occur. Thus, cell specialization brings more complex function, but requires more controlled conditions. So I think this is interesting that eukaryotic cells essentially build their environment around themselves. So they built this body basically to keep themselves comfortable. I love that thought. Uh, differentiation is a function of development, and thus genes in multicellular eukaryotes are often developmentally regulated. Okay, going back to the body thing. So if you were a cell, and you can only live in this water-rich environment, but you wanted to go walk around, how would you do it? You would have to build a body, right? So this is an organic like spaceship, basically, to transport cells in this water environment. Um, all the time. I love that. I think it's a great idea. And that's why I'm so interested in like the biological ships in my fiction, because that's essentially what we're going to have to do to go exploring on other planets, right? We're going to have to build a new body to go space exploring, which is cool. Gene regulation during the development and life cycle of a complex organism is, as you would expect, complex. In addition to genes that are controlled and regulated, there are many examples of gene products that are needed at all times during a cell's life. Such genes are sometimes called housekeeping genes or constitutive genes in that they are essentially unregulated and encode proteins that are essential at all times, such as enzymes for primary catabolic pathways. And again, I love this idea because you know what cells are going to be continuously dying, right? So you just keep those on the manufacturing list constantly. It's like the if you could design a work order system in the external world to represent like what your body does, it would be the perfect work order system. So I think this is an opportunity for biomimicry in like supply chain processes. Although a detailed discussion of the control of gene expression is outside the scope of this book. The basic principles can be illustrated by considering how bacterial operons are regulated. A bacterial cell living outside the laboratory will experience a wide range of environmental conditions. In particular, there will be fluctuations in the availability of nutrients. If the cell is to survive, it must conserve energy resources, which means that wasteful synthesis of non-required proteins should be prevented. Again, this is, this is a supply chain problem, right? i not that very cool? Thus, bacterial cells have mechanisms that enable operons to be controlled with a high degree of sensitivity. This is production on demand. An operon that encodes proteins involved in catabolic pathways, one that breaks down materials to release energy. Oh shoot, I said that backwards tonight. All right, so go back 20 minutes and then pretend like I didn't invert catabolic and anabolic. Catabolic pathways, ones that break down materials to release energy, is often regulated by being switched on only when the substance becomes available in the extracellular medium. Thus, when the substance is absent, there are systems that keep catabolic operons switched off. These are said to be inducible operons and are usually controlled by a negative control mechanism involving a repressor protein that prevents access to the promoter by RNA polymerase. A good example of these would be your bone structures. right? The classic example of a catabolic operon is the lac operon, the structure of which is shown in Figure 2.7. When lactose is absent, the repressor protein binds to the operator, and the system is off. The system is a little leaky, however, and thus the proteins encoded by the operon, or beta-galactosidase, permease, and transalactase, acetylase, will be present in the cells at low-level. When lactose becomes available, it is transported into the cell by the permease and binds to the repressor protein, causing a conformational or a shape change, so that the repressor is unable to bind to the operator. Thus, the negative control is removed, and the operon is accessible by RNA polymerase. A second level of control based on the level of CAMP ensures that full activity is only attained when lactose is present and energy levels are low. This dual control mechanism is a very effective way of regulating gene expression, enabling a range of levels of expression that is a bit like a dimmer switch rather than an on-off switch. In the case of catabolic operons like the lac system, this ensures that the enzymes are only synthesized at the maximum rate when they are really required. Genes and genomes. When techniques for the examination of DNA became established, gene structure was naturally one of the first areas where efforts were concentrated. However, genes do not exist in isolation, but as part of the genome of an organism. Over the past few years, the emphasis in molecular biology has shifted slightly, and today we are much more likely to consider the genome as a whole, almost as a type of cellular organelle, rather than just a collection of genes. The Human Genome Project is a good example of the development of the field of bioinformatics, which is one of the most active research areas in modern molecular biology. Genome Size and Complexity The amount of DNA in the haploid genome is known as the C value. It would seem reasonable to assume that genome size should increase with increasing complexity of organisms, reflecting the greater number of genes required to facilitate this complexity. The data shown in Table 2.3 show that, as expected, genome size does tend to increase with organism complexity. Thus, bacteria, yeast, fruit fly, and human genomes fit this pattern. However, mouse, tobacco, and wheat have much larger genomes than humans. And this seems rather strange, as intuitively we might assume that a wheat plant is not as complex as a human being. Also, as E. coli has around 4,000 genes, It appears that the tobacco plant genome has the capacity to encode 4 million genes, and this is certainly not the case, even allowing for the increased size and complexity of eukaryotic genes. This anomaly is sometimes called the C-value paradox. So just for some comparisons, Homo sapiens has uh, 3,000 MBs, and we can compare that to wheat which has 17,000 Mbs or nicotine tobacco Nicotiana tobacco, at 4,500 Isn't that interesting? In addition to the size of the genome, genome complexity also tends to increase with more complex organisms organization. One way of studying complexity involves examining the renaturation of DNA samples. If a DNA duplex is denatured by heating the solution until the strands separate, the complementary strands will renature on cooling. This feature can be used to provide information about the sequence complexity of DNA in question, since sequences that are present as multiple copies in the genome will renature faster than sequences that are present as single copies only. By performing this type of analysis, eukaryotic DNA can be shown to be composed of four different abundance classes. First, Some DNA will form duplex structures almost instantly because of the denatured strands having regions such as inverted repeats or palindromes, which fold back on each other to give a hairpin loop structure. This class is commonly known as fold-back DNA. The second fastest to re-anneal are highly repetitive sequences, which occur many times in the genome. Following these are moderately repetitive sequences. And finally, there are unique or single-copy sequences, which rarely re-anneal under the conditions used for this type of analysis. We will consider how repetitive DNA sequence elements can be used in genome mapping and DNA profiling in chapters 10 and 12. Genome organization. The C-value paradox and the sequence complexity of eukaryotic genomes raise questions about how genomes are organized. Viral and bacterial genomes tend to show very efficient use of DNA for encoding their genes, which is a consequence of, and explanation for, their small genome size. However, in the human genome, only about 3% of the total amount of DNA is actually coding sequence. Even when the introns and control sequences are added, the majority of the DNA has no obvious function. This is sometimes termed junk DNA, although this is perhaps the wrong way to think about this apparently redundant DNA. Estimating the number of genes in a particular organism is not an exact science, and a number of different methods may be used. When the full genetics genome sequence is determined, this obviously makes gene identification much easier, although there are many cases where gene encoding sequences are recognized, but the protein products are unknown in terms of their biological function. Many genes in eukaryotes are single-copy genes and tend to be dispersed across multiple chromosomes found in eukaryotic cell nuclei. Other genes may be part of multi-gene families and may be grouped at a particular chromosomal location or may be dispersed. When studying gene organization in the context of the genome itself, features such as gene density, gene size, mRNA size, intergenic distance, and intron or exon sizes are important indicators. Early analysis of human DNA indicated that the average size of the coding region is about 1,500 base pairs and the average size of a gene is 10 to 15 kBP. Gene density is about one gene per 40 to 45 kBP, and the intergenic distance is around 25 to 30 kBP. However, as we have already seen, gene structure in eukaryotes can be very complex, and thus using average estimates is a little misleading. What is clear clear now is that genomes are yielding much more information about gene structure and function as genome sequencing projects generate more data what is sometimes called the post-genomic era. Transcriptome and proteome We finish this look at molecular biology by introducing two more ohms to complement the genome. These terms have become widely used as researchers begin to delve into the bioinformatics of cells. The transcriptome refers to the population of transcripts at any point in a cell's life. This expressed subset of genomic information will be determined by many factors affecting the status of the cell. There will be general housekeeping genes for basic maintenance of cell function. There also may be tissue-specific genes being expressed, or perhaps developmentally regulated genes will be on at that particular point. Analysis of the transcriptome, therefore, gives a good snapshot of what the cell is engaged in at that point in time. The proteome is a logical extension to the genome and transcriptome in that it represents the population of proteins in the cell. The proteome will reflect the transcriptome to a much greater extent than the transcriptome reflects the genome, although there will be some transcripts that may not be translated efficiently, and there may be proteins that persist in the cell when their transcripts have been removed from circulation. Many biologists now accept that an understanding of the proteome is critical in developing a full understanding of how cells work. Some even consider the proteome as the holy grail of cell biology, comparing it with the search for unifying theory in physics. The argument is that if we understand how all the proteins of a cell work, then surely we have a complete understanding of cell structure and function. As with most things in biology, this is unlikely to be a simple process, although the next few years will provide much excitement for biology as the secrets of gene expression are revealed in more detail. I fully appreciate that, but understanding cell structure and function feel like there are going to be second and third-order effects that you just can't anticipate, that again, it's this falling into the reductionist trap where you, you ignore the emergent properties and the experiential data in order to favor this reductionist idea of simply identifying pieces, but that may be my own bias. Okay, that was chapter two. Um, We are going to do a chapter on plant metabolism and physiology as well to start augmenting this cellular review as we start working into plant metabolism for phytoremediation processes.